All right, we're going to be back in Revelation chapter 20 today, Revelation chapter 20. And before we get to our passage this morning, there's one more thing. We've had a lot of extra things this morning in our service, but as you're aware, tomorrow is Memorial Day, and we do want to take a moment to pause and thank the Lord for those people who have given their lives in service of our country and to pray for their families as we remember this day. And I hope we don't look at it as just a day off on Monday or a long weekend, because there are a lot of people who have sacrificed their lives for the freedom that we have just to be able to be here today. And so we need to pray for them. So if you would stand with me as we honor them before the Lord today, we're just going to take a minute and pray for their families and thank the Lord for their sacrifice. Our Father, we thank you again for those who, in service of our country to protect our freedom, have given their lives. Lord, you have told us that we have no greater, li- greater friend than those who lay down their lives for us. We have a perfect example of that in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we have and lift up to you today those who have done that in service of our country, protecting the freedoms that we enjoy even today. Lord, we thank you for their sacrifice, but we know that it's a great sacrifice that's given on their behalf and by their families. And so we ask that you would continue to bless those who are left behind, who are the survivors and the family of those people who have died in service. Lord, we just pray that you would give them strength and encourage them. Continue to lift up our nation. Lord, we ask that you would work in the leaders' hearts, that you would help us to be ruled by righteousness. And we know that we have flawed men in leadership, and yet you turn the hearts of a leader. So so we ask that your intervention may be there that we'll see your hand in our government. But Lord, right now we just thank you for those who have sacrificed and given the ultimate sacrifice to protect the freedom that we have even to worship you today. Lord, thank you again for your love for us and shown even in this way. And help us not to forget that sacrifice as we serve you. And we bless you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And now we're going to go to Revelation chapter 20. We started this last week with an introduction to the Millennial Kingdom. And this morning, I'm going to take part of the passage. We don't have a lot of time left, so we're not going to do all of this passage. But we're going to take part of this passage in the first six verses of Revelation 20. And as I mentioned last week, this six verses is the only six verses that we really have dedicated to the Millennial Kingdom, 1,000 years of Christ's reign on earth. And as we get to chapter 20, just to bring us up to speed again, in, John chapter, or in Revelation 19, John describes the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the Great Tribulation as he delivers the remnant of Israel from the wrath of the Antichrist. And he destroys the armies of Satan on the earth, And then he casts the Antichrist and the false prophet into the uh, lake of fire, alive. And we saw coming with Christ, or all of his saints, as he descends from heaven to his earth. But it's Christ alone that destroys all the armies of the Antichrist on earth. And then the carnage that's left over from that massacre at Armageddon is basically food 
at the, what's called the Great Supper of God for all the birds as they feast and fill themselves with the flesh of those who have been killed, both men and horses. And so as we enter into chapter 20, chapter 20 signals the beginning of the next stage of earth's history after all of that has happened. Christ is now on earth. His enemies have been destroyed in the armies of the Antichrist, the false prophet, the Antichrist themselves have been removed from the earth and cast into the lake of fire. And we have these six verses that tell us about the millennial kingdom that now is about to begin. And last week we saw that the importance of understanding that this kingdom is a literal 1,000 years. It's not just a long time. It is not something that is happening now figuratively. It is not something we look at allegorically. It's a physical 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth that will follow the Great Tribulation period. Remember, six times in the first seven verses here, Jesus gives us a statement of the 1,000 years, and so it's a literal 1,000 years that Christ will reign after his enemies on earth are destroyed. And the, deal, the thing that he has to deal with first now as, as Christ comes back and begins to set up his kingdom is that we still have the usurper on the earth. And so Christ has to take care of Satan to, to restrict him, restrain him. And that's what we have in the first three verses. But before we get into the passage, let me just share a little bit more information about the literal 1,000 years as we believe it to be. Okay? We've talked about this literal 1,000-year viewpoint. Last week I gave you three different viewpoints that people have. The premillennial view that Christ will come before this 1,000-year kingdom, which makes sense. He has to be on earth. He has to come back before he can reign. Okay, that's the viewpoint that we believe here at Bunker Hill. Then there was the postmillennial that believe we're kind of in the millennial kingdom already and that Christ is going to come back as the earth gets better and better. And that view kind of faded off after the world wars and after the Holocaust and those atrocities that happened early in the 20th century. But then there's a third view that kind of morphed out of that. It's called amillennialism, which we are in the millennium. It's just a long period of time. Christ rules through the church, and Satan is restricted in some way during that time. And we see the folly of that. But we take the Bible literally, and so we hold to the premillennial view of the second coming of Christ, in not just that in order to come to that conclusion, we take the Bible at face value, but that before us, there were many people, especially the early church, that held that viewpoint, okay? And it's not a viewpoint that Christ is going to return, and then the literal 1,000 years of Christ will happen, that he will rule on the earth. Not just that the Bible says it, but that there were many um, early church fathers, there were many Jewish people, actually, who may not have actually been believers, who believed that the coming of Christ, this physical 1,000-year reign of Christ, was a literal thing. They were looking forward to that. Remember, for the Jews, that's what the prophecy in the Old Testament was all about, looking forward to that kingdom. And they understood it to mean a kingdom on the earth. That is, as I mentioned last week, it's kind of the highlight of Jewish history. This is everything they're looking forward to. But I want you to understand that there are other writings, religious writings, apart from Scripture that talk about this physical 1,000-year kingdom of Christ. Okay? Um, In fact, I want you to put it in this time frame. 
Okay, and this is how they look at it. This is how the early church fathers looked at it. God created the world in seven, in six days, and then on the seventh day, he rested. The Bible clearly tells us that in Genesis. In fact, when God gave the Ten Commandments, he said, six days shall you work, and the seventh day you shall rest. That was the principle of the Sabbath. And he said, just as I created the world in six days, and on the seventh day I rested, therefore we're going to establish this Sabbath principle. So that was the basic foundation of the Sabbath idea or the Sabbath rest. But that principle of God creating the world in six days was carried forth actually into understanding the world's existence as a whole. And there are many early writings that allude to this. And it came and was accepted by both the Jews and the early church throughout history in that light. And so many people believed that the earth would be around for 7,000 years, and that was it. Now, if you are an old earth creationist, obviously you won't fit into that pattern because you believe that the world has existed for millions of years. But if you believe that the earth was literally created in six days and that the earth, according to the Bible, and as we look at the genealogies and try to trace the history, it's about 6,000 years old now. Okay? And this idea that most people believed back early all through history that the earth was only going to exist for 7,000 years went back to God created the earth in six days and rested, and the earth is going to exist now for 6,000 years, and then it will be destroyed, or have a rest and then be destroyed. And so there's this rest period that is the Sabbath millennium, if you will, that people looked at as the millennial kingdom of Christ, the, one, the last 1,000 years of that 7,000 years. Now, the oldest reference to this week of millenniums is actually one found in the Talmud. This is the Jewish handbook, if you will. It's not the Bible. It is the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, their interpretation of Scripture and how it should be applied. And it goes all the way back into the Babylonian exile of Israel as they didn't have the temple, and so they were trying to figure out how to worship the Lord according to Scripture the best they could. And so the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel in exile tried to start putting together this kind of handbook of worship and belief for Israel. It's called the Talmud. And it came out of that Babylonian period and was completed between 200 and 500 A.D., that's after Christ. But the Talmud references a statement attributed to the prophetic school that was established by the prophet Elijah. Now, Elijah was one who continued to propagate what was called the sons of the prophets in the Old Testament. It was started by Samuel. Prophet continued teaching other people in this prophetic realm. But supposedly, teachings out of the school by Elijah state this, 6,000 years is the duration of the world. 2,000 of the 6,000 years are characterized by chaos, referring to a period of no law. That means a period from creation or from the fall of Adam to Abraham. And through history, we understand that to be about 2,000 years. And so they consider that a period of chaos. Then he says 2,000 years are characterized by the Torah, 
from the era of the patriarchs until the end of the Mishniac period. That means the period between Abraham and Jesus Christ, another 2,000 years. And history, if you stick to biblical history, will affirm that. It was about 2,000 years from Abraham to Christ when God was working through Abraham and then his descendants to bring his revelation to the world. Christ was the fulfillment of that revelation. So they say, and then 2,000 years are the coming of the Messiah. And again, this is written in the Talmud, supposedly from the school of Elijah. And that last 2,000 years is when they expected the Messiah to return. And they have all kinds of patterns that they go through Earth's history about 4,000 years before the Messiah is going to come, and then the Messiah was going to come. Okay, and we know that to be true. It was about 4,000 years in Earth's history that Christ's first advent happened. Christ came to earth as a baby. And again, you can trace that historically. Now, there was a 10th century midrash or rabbi who commented on that last description that the last 2,000 years are the coming of the Messiah. And he says this, he should have come at the beginning of the last 2,000 years, but the delay is due to our sin. Now, it's interesting that a Jewish rabbi would say something like that. But... As believing Christians and understanding Scripture, we know that the Messiah did come after that first 4,000 years, and the Jews rejected him. And therefore, he lived his life, he was crucified by the Jews, and then he ascended back to heaven, and as he ascended to heaven, he prophetically said, I will not come again until the Jews proclaim me Blessed be he that comes in the name of the Lord, which we understand to be his second coming. Okay? So this, there is actually something called the delayed kingdom theory, which states that if the Jews had accepted Jesus as the Messiah in his first advent, if they had repented spiritually at that time, then Christ would have set up his kingdom then. Now, in the scope of God's plan... God knew what would happen. God knew that Christ would not be accepted. Isaiah prophesies that. And so it wasn't destined in God's plan for Christ to set up his kingdom at that 4,000-year mark at his first advent. God knew that there would be another 2,000 years or so that the earth would be in existence when Christ would be in heaven after he first came and we call that generally the church age, okay? In the book of Enoch, the books of Enoch, these are in what we call the pseudepigrapha or the apocrypha. They are extra-biblical books. They're not scripture, but they are considered authoritative in content. The books of Enoch, named after Enoch, who we know was uh, the son of Methuselah, or the grandson of Methuselah, who was translated. Back in Genesis chapters 5 and 6, we see uh, Enoch was translated. He was taken up alive. He didn't die, okay? And many people believe Enoch is going to be one of those two witnesses that come back at uh, during the tribulation. But the books of Enoch, again, not Scripture, includes a record of a vision from an angel about the timeline of history. And the books of Enoch prophesy a period or or. 10 weeks or 10 periods of 700 years each, totaling 7,000 years before the earth will be destroyed. And so here again, we see that seven millenniums prophesied. There's another Christian work 
named after one called Barnabas. And if you've been with us in our study of Acts, you'll recognize Barnabas as a companion of Paul. He's the son of comfort who took Paul under his wing when Paul was first converted. He went on Paul's first missionary journey with him. But there's a book called The the uh, uh, Gospel of Barnabas, who, uh, which says basically this, Therefore, children, in six days, that is, in 6,000 years, everything shall come to an end. Another Christian author, Lactantius, he was a theologian back in the 300s, around 300 AD. He wrote, as there had been 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham and 2,000 from Abraham to Christ, so there will be 2,000 years for the Christian era, and then will come the millennium. There were other church fathers who held this belief. They include Irenaeus, who was the bishop of the Church of Lyons in the second century. Hippolytus, the theologian in Rome beginning in the third century. Methodius, a bishop of Tyre at the end of the third century. So through the first three centuries of the church, the general belief was that the earth would be in existence for 6,000 years. Christ would come back. There'd be a 1,000 years of peace and rest under his rule, and then the earth would be destroyed, as Second Peter tells us. With great heat, all of the elements will be dissolved, and then God will create a new heaven and new earth. There's even an old tradition that the prophet Elijah taught there would be 6,000 years for humans to rule under Satan's kingdom, followed by 1,000 years of abundance in the kingdom of God. So we see all of this evidence in ancient writings, both Christian and non-Christian, especially even from the Jews' side that the earth will be in existence for 7,000 years. Now, just because all of the Jews and all of the early Christians believe that this was the fact doesn't mean that this is actually what's going to happen, okay? It doesn't specifically say that in Scripture. What we do know about Scripture is that Christ is coming. He will reign on earth for 1,000 years, and then it could happen any time, okay? It's coming. The Bible tells us that. We've been studying that all through the Scripture. But with all of this evidence beside that, it is worth considering this point. And we keep saying, man, it seems like we're getting closer and closer and closer to the coming of Christ. Now, this is not the rapture. This is the second coming, which we saw over the last couple weeks at the end of the tribulation period. Now, I want you to consider this, and this is a big if, but if all of this prophecy is true, if the earth is going to be in existence only for about 7,000 years, then we have to think that we are getting close, because we've already been in existence for 6,000 years on the earth. What's left? The 1,000 years of Christ's millennial reign. Some theologians back in the 18 and 1900s, calculated that Christ would return in the year 2000. We missed it, okay? They didn't get it right. Now, the Bible tells us, and Christ said this, no one knows the day or the hour that he's going to return. So I think it's futile to try to say, oh, he's going to return this day or this year or this month. Oh, look at the the calendar, and we're going to prophesy this. Okay, I'm not doing that today. What I'm trying to help us understand is that Christ's return is imminent. It could happen at any time. 
The 2,000 year has passed. We're 22 years beyond that. But I want you to put this in perspective. If you go back to the date of the fall of Adam and work forward, as some historians have done, then they calculate Christ's second coming to happen somewhere between 2024 and 2075. That is this generation. So when we talk about all of this stuff in Revelation, we're not talking possibly about something that's going to happen way far ahead in history. We're talking about things that may happen within our lifetime. And I make that a probability, not just a possibility. Now again, I'm not trying to predict when Christ is going to return at the rapture. No one knows that. But if we say, based on these calculations, that Christ could return, his second coming could happen between 2026, 2030, 2024, and 2075. Let's go 2,000 years after the ascension of Jesus Christ back to heaven. That puts us at his second coming around 2034. If you take away seven years of tribulation, that means the rapture could happen as early as 2026. Four years. Now, I'm not predicting the rapture will happen in four years. I just want us to understand the perspective that when the Bible says it could happen at any moment, it really means it could happen at any moment. Okay, so all of what we've been studying here, and even as we study the millennial kingdom of Christ, it's not something that's possibly way far off in the future that we're going to have to wait another thousand or two thousand years for. This could be within our lifetime, our human lifetime. Now, if we're part of the church and we're saved today, obviously we're going to go up in the rapture. We'll be in heaven for seven years, and then we'll come back with Christ as he comes to rule the earth. And we'll be on earth with him for a thousand years. But the question is, putting all of that in perspective, are you ready for that? Or are we still tied to this earth and all that it offers so much that if Christ were to come back today, we would be going up to heaven going, man, I regret leaving all that behind. I don't think that'll be our thought. But think about that. Are we so tied to this earth that if Christ came back today, that we were like, I'm not ready yet, God. There's still stuff I want to enjoy. There's still things I want to do. We need to have the perspective that when Christ comes back, that's what we're looking forward to. That's the highlight of everything we live for. And, and I've talked to Christians, you know, and, and some people are like, well, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm, I love my life here. I'm excited about God's work and what he's doing in my life. I don't know if I really want to go to heaven yet because it just sounds boring. We're going to sit around singing in the choir and I can't sing. That's not it at all, folks. What we live for is this day. What we live for is to be with Jesus personally. And if that's not what you live for, then there's something truly lacking in your salvation. So we're looking forward to this day. Now, we're looking forward to the rapture, but the the thousand-year reign of Christ, that's what all history has been looking forward to. Paul said in Romans, the whole earth, all of creation groans with us in our spirit looking for that day of redemption. This is the day of redemption that the Bible's talking about, that thousand years when Christ will get rid of all evil on the earth. 
And everybody who lives on the earth will live in peace and in absolute righteousness. And we won't have to complain about our rulers and all the corruption that's happening in government because Jesus himself will be ruling the earth. And if we're not looking forward to that, we got a problem. So this should be the thing that motivates us. You know, I used to listen to the radio as I drove back and forth to work when I was in New Hampshire many years ago. And there was a pastor, and I can't remember who it was. It may have been Warren Wiersbe, but he used to say all the time, if heaven is your destination, heaven will be your motivation. And that's the way we ought to live. Motivated to get to this point when Jesus Christ comes back. So all of that is just kind of give us a perspective of what we're looking at in this thousand years. This is what it should be to us as believers. It's not just a highlight of history for the Jews. It's a highlight which we should be looking forward to as well. And it could happen any minute. I mean, literally. I I get up in the morning. It's like, okay, Lord, today, please, you know, before I turn on the news or look at the newspaper, I don't want to see that. But he is coming back. So keep that in perspective. And it's all the more reason why you need to make sure that you're going to be part of that kingdom as a follower of the king before he comes the first, before he comes at the rapture. Okay? So let's get back to Revelation chapter 20. We've already been introduced to the thousand year kingdom of Christ here. And let me just read the first three verses, because this is the topic that we're going to focus on this morning. John says, I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, the great chain in his hand, and he laid hold on that dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season." At the end of my message last week, I said there are three main truths in these six verses at the beginning of Revelation chapter 20 that I wanted you to see. The first one is the literal of bondage of Satan by Christ and his return at the end. That's what we're going to look at today. The second one is the literal reign of saints with Christ until the end of that time. And the third is the two stages of the literal resurrection, one at the beginning and one at the end of that millennial kingdom. And so this morning in verses 1 through 3, we see the literal bondage of Satan by Christ. And this is something that has to happen. As I already mentioned, all the armies of Antichrist are removed. The false prophet and the Antichrist are removed. So the foundations of the evil government of the world have now been removed. But the source behind it has not. Satan is still on the loose. And so Christ has to do something about him in order to establish his reign and reclaim his authority on the earth that the great usurper has taken from him. And so that's what we read here in verses 1 through 3. Christ binds Satan. Satan is removed. In verse 1, John says he sees an angel coming down from heaven, holding the keys to the abyss with a great chain in his hand. Now, we've already seen this key to the abyss before, way back in chapter 9, okay? In in chapter 9, verse 1, it starts, I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. This star that fell from heaven or was cast out of heaven at that moment is Satan and his angels. And that's elaborated more on in chapter 12. 
Okay, but this is the beginning of the fifth trumpet judgment in chapter 9. That fall from heaven, the star is Satan himself. He's referred to as the morning star, actually, in some verses in Scripture. But he is banished with, with all his demons from heaven. And it says he's given the key to the abyss at that point. And remember, since Satan is now cast out of heaven or literally exiled from being able to go up into heaven, into God's presence to accuse the brethren, he's confined to earth for the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. And so because he's confined, he's going to take his wrath out on the people of earth at that moment. That's why I believe it gets so bad in the last half of the tribulation, because Satan has nowhere else to vent except on people. Satan is given the keys to the abyss in chapter 9, and he unlocks the abyss and unleashes hordes of demon locusts that swarm over the earth, and they're given power to torment men for five months. That's all in chapter 9. We studied that. Men will get so grieved and so desperate in their suffering during that period that they will seek to die. They will try to take their own life, but God will prevent them. They must suffer this judgment. And so Satan is given this key to the abyss at that point in chapter 9 during the trumpet judgments. Here, at the end of the tribulation, Satan no longer has that key. The angel of God carries that key, and he also carries a chain, which we find out he uses to bind Satan. Now, as you read verse 1 and you look at the commentaries, there is great debate about what this chain is. Because they say, well, no chain can bind Satan because he's not a physical being. He's a spirit, and chains can't bind spirits. And then they allude to the demoniac that Christ healed. But remember, they tried to bind this demoniac with chains, and he broke the chains because the chains can't handle a demon and all of this. Okay, so what is this chain? I don't know. It doesn't say. It just says that the, the angel has a chain which he uses to bind Satan. So it's something that God has enabled this demon or this uh, angel to do to restrict Satan in his movement, in his authority, in his influence. And so he's bound. And really it doesn't matter what the chain is except that God is able to bind Satan. God's power is greater than Satan. And there's one more point out of this that we need to understand that Satan should never be seen as God's opposite or equal. Okay, we're not talking about the dark side versus the light side. And there are a lot of people, even Christians today, whose theology is formed more by Hollywood than it is by Scripture. And so as we think about Satan, we think, oh, Satan, you know, he's like the counterpart to God. He's just the bad side of that force. That is not true at all. We need to get rid of that thinking. It comes out of transcendentalism, which is a false teaching, by the way. It comes from Eastern religions. And you've probably heard of the yin-yang. You've probably seen the symbol with the little black swirl and the little white swirl, and they mesh together to form a perfect circle. Okay, That all comes out of this false teaching of transcendentalism. But it teaches, basically, and, and you can see it in Star Wars. If you're a Star Wars fan, you know the dark side of the Force, the light side of the Force. Okay, That's what Satan wants us to believe, that he is as powerful as God. He's just on the dark side. This passage teaches us otherwise. 
Because I want you to look very carefully at verse 1. It says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and the great chain in his hand, and he laid hold on that dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. Who binds Satan? Is it God himself? Is it Jesus Christ? No, it's an angel of God that God has commissioned to do this work for him. So now there's another angel that's more powerful than Satan, and it was that thinking in the first place by Satan that he could be equal with God that got him cast out and condemned in the first place. So we have to get outside of that thinking and understand that God's power far is superior to anything that Satan can claim. And here it's an angel commissioned by God that actually binds Satan. So he's more powerful than Satan himself. Not Jesus Christ, not God himself, an angel sent by God. Now that shows you the limits of Satan's power under God's authority, okay? So that's important to understand. We do need to know there is a spiritual war raging all around us. Satan is trying to deceive us. He is very influential. He is very knowledgeable. He has great power, but he does not even come close to the power of God that we have within us. And therefore, we can all be victorious in our daily Christian lives. We do not have to give in to Satan. So Satan is not God's equal. So here the angel lays hold of Satan and casts him, or binds him, and casts him into the abyss for a thousand years. In verse 2, John also wants us to understand who it is that's being bound and imprisoned by this angel. He gives him three names. The dragon, and that's a reference back to chapter 12, where Satan is referred to as that great dragon that is thrown out of heaven, that persecutes Israel on the earth, and in chapter 13, who gives power to the Antichrist and the false prophet. That is Satan, called here the dragon. Then he calls him that old serpent, and that's a reference all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Remember, Eve was deceived by Satan through the serpent. And so the reference here is that great deceiver, okay? And then he calls him, which is the devil. The word there is diabolos, okay? It means slanderer, malicious gossip, false accuser. And it's an appropriate name for the one who falsely accuses the brethren, all of us, before God and the one who is the father of lies. So this is not an evil spirit we're talking about. This is Satan who is bound, the force behind all evil. He is bound and cast into the pit. And he uses that word Satan. He calls him Satan. The word in Hebrew is Satan. In Greek, it's Satanus. It means adversary. And the Bible tells us he is our adversary. He wants to destroy. There's nothing good that comes from him. And now he is rendered helpless under the power of Jesus Christ. In verse 3, the angel binds him and casts him into the abyss and casts him to the bottomless pit, and he shuts him up and he sets a seal upon him so that he can deceive the nations no more till the thousand years shall be fulfilled. Now, I want you to see a sense of irony here, and I believe God has a sense of irony in history and how he works. Because if you remember when Jesus Christ first came to earth, his mission was to be the Redeemer to break the power of Satan in sin over mankind. And he did that through his death and resurrection. But in Satan's perspective, he saw an opportunity to destroy Christ and have him killed and sealed up in a tomb 
to try to thwart God's plan. And now, God is going to bind Satan and seal him up in a tomb, as it were, for a thousand years. Almost exactly what Satan tried to do to Christ and was unsuccessful, but God is always successful. And so Satan will be bound in this abyss for a thousand years. Now, I want you to think about that. That 1,000 years then, no Satan. All evil people, unbelievers, have been removed from the earth as Christ begins his earthly kingdom. And no Satan. Now, you think that would be utopia. And it literally would be. Okay? And as I mentioned last week, there are those who believe we're already in the millennial kingdom and that Satan is already bound in a spiritual sense But again, I don't know how you can believe that with all the things that are going on in the world today. Okay, You describe today's world, we have wars going on, we have pandemics happening, we have animals being valued more than human life, children are being murdered before they're born, marriage is being destroyed, homosexuality and perversion are being taught as normal in our schools, and anyone who believes the Bible and tries to obey it is mocked and seen as an extremist. And the world is getting better? I don't think so. Satan is alive and well today. But in the millennial kingdom, he will not be. He will be bound so that he has no more influence on the earth. Now, verse 3 ends with this, and after that, he must be loosed a little season. He's not going to be bound permanently. And we're going to look at this as we get farther into this chapter. Because at the end of the millennium, Satan will be loosed and allowed to come back to the earth to try his tricks one last time. And there's a purpose for this. And we'll explain that when we get there. But God has a purpose in everything. And you think, all right, we have a thousand years of Christ's reign. Everything is going to be perfect. Why would he let Satan loose at the end of it? To prove a point. And we need to understand that point. That we can't blame Satan. For our evil. Because for a thousand years, Christ will reign on the earth. No Satan. He will start that millennial kingdom with all believers, but there will be millions and maybe hundreds of millions of people who are born during that time to human parents who survived the tribulation and entered the kingdom as believers, but they are still born with a fallen human nature. That has not been eradicated. So because of that fallen human nature in mankind, for all of those people born during the millennium, under the rule of a perfect ruler, in the presence of Jesus Christ himself, there still is that sin nature. And verses 7 and 8 tell us, At the end of that time, Satan will be loosed, and he will gather an army from among those people born in the millennial kingdom that numbers as the sand of the sea. We cannot blame Satan for our wickedness. And that's God's point. Even in a perfect utopia, the curse of sin is still going to come out in people. Our fallen nature will show itself, even under a perfect environment with Jesus Christ at the head. And so when finally given the chance to rebel, they do so in full strength, led by the great deceiver himself. 
Now, we'll get to that in a little more detail, but that shouldn't be surprising to us. If you understand the nature of the church today, Jesus said in the church there would be true sheep and there would be goats, there would be true wheat, and there would be tares or weeds. And at the end, he's going to separate them out. And there are people attending church, sitting in churches all across the world, even today, who are there because they think that by doing that and by following the rules, thereby in some way making God happy with them so that God will give them what they want. Isn't that the religion of Satan? That's what we saw in the fall of Babylon. In their hearts, they really have truly never surrendered to Jesus Christ, just like those people during the millennium will in their hearts never surrender, even though outwardly they must conform. And when given the chance, they will rebel, just like given the chance, those who have not surrendered to Christ now will rebel. When they're not constrained by the confines of the church, they live life for themselves. They seek their own pleasure, their own treasure, instead of serving Christ. So people aren't going to be much different in the millennial kingdom than they are today because of a fallen human nature that is cursed by sin. Even today we have imposters, what Christ called robbers or wolves in sheep's clothing sitting in our churches pretending to be what they're not. And when given the chance, they will show who they truly are, just like we all do. That's the whole point of living in the Spirit. Because when we're truly walking and living in the Spirit, then the character of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, Paul says in Galatians 5, will come out of our lives. Our lives will be characterized by love, joy, and peace, long-suffering and patience toward each other, peacefulness in our relationships with other people, gentleness in how we, how we handle one another. And if that only happens when we're inside the four walls of the church, then, folks, we're not genuine believers. We're imposters. And when given the chance to rebel, we will rebel. Now, I'm not saying go around and watch all of the people in this church in their regular lives. I'm saying watch yourself. Go home. Look in the mirror to see what you are the rest of the week. We're no different than any other person. If we're a believer, we've been saved and redeemed by Jesus Christ, and we have the Holy Spirit in us. If that doesn't show in our lives every day, then we've got a problem that we have to deal with. And God will either judge us and send us to hell because of our rebellion, or he will forgive us if we truly surrender to him. Satan is not the one who makes you choose yourself and disobey God. It's you. It's the sin nature that rules all of us. Unless we have been surrendered to Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us. And unless you're living in the power of the Holy Spirit, then you are going to be one of those rebels that Jesus will destroy at the end of all things. And I don't wish that upon anybody. So I'm going to leave you with this question that you need to ask yourself. Have I truly surrendered to Jesus as king? And am I resisting the deceit and the temptations of Satan 
through the power of the Holy Spirit is in me. We can't do it ourselves, folks. We need God's help. And so we must surrender to him in everything. If you haven't surrendered to Jesus in everything, then you're working for the enemy. And when the time comes, you will show your loyalty. But I hope that loyalty is to Jesus Christ, that he is your king before the judgment happens. We're going to stop there. We'll look at these other two truths as we continue on next week. So let's have have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your truth and your word. We thank you that you've taught us about things to come in the future for us, which may not be that far distant. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to be watching for your coming, to be ready, to be eager for your coming, because that's where our heart truly is. Lord, if there's people, anyone here today, who have not surrendered, who are not truly looking for your coming, because they're too satisfied with their own life on this earth, Lord, I pray that you convict them and help them to surrender even today, so that they can be saved from the judgment, so that you can be glorified in your truth through their lives. Lord, we thank you again for what you've taught us, for the conviction even that you've brought today through your word. May we learn and grow and proceed forth in the power of your spirit. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close this morning with hymn number 394, I Surrender All.